The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Good morning. There's uh, one other group I want to introduce you to, uh, students. Uh, each year, there's a group of uh, friends who uh, gather with me uh, to meet to discuss various aspects of the university, our strategic plan, things we've done, things we're thinking about doing, things we're currently doing. Uh, and that's the President's Advisory Council. They uh, come from all over the region and they're here today. So I want you to uh, maybe stand and, and see these folks and then you can uh, welcome them as well. They're here this morning. Couple of, uh, couple of specific announcements that I want to share with you on a beautiful day, a great day for an open house. I'm looking forward to time with our guests a little bit later. Uh, and spending the day with the President's Advisory Council, but there are a couple of specific announcements. We have some folks uh, with a table over in the Mason Activity Center as you enter uh, the Dining Commons uh, from Camp of the Woods. Uh, Jim Hammond uh, from Camp of the Woods is on the President's Advisory Council. There are some staff members here today. There are a number of you already signed up uh, to go now for what is, I don't know how many years in a row we've been doing this, where we send a group of students up to help open the camp in May. What a great opportunity. Room and board, great pay rate. They come and get you and take you there. You knock out four or five weeks of work and move on with your summer. But they have other opportunities throughout the summer. Uh, I believe there are three of you presently applied and accepted to work at Camp of the Woods over the summer. We've got a very strong relationship with Camp of the Woods. Uh, we enjoy uh, our ministry partnership. And Camp of the Woods uh, just informed me this week uh, that for our students who are interested in working at Camp of the Woods this summer who apply today, Camp of the Woods will make uh, a scholarship amount available in addition to the pay that you will receive that can be applied against your fall bill upon the successful completion of your service to uh, Camp of the Woods where uh, they're making it possible for you to have some additional scholarship money applied to your fall semester. So if you, if you uh, go over there and see those folks today uh, in the Mason Activity Center, uh, you can talk to them about serving at Camp of the Woods this summer. Great ministry, great opportunity uh, to serve the Lord there in the Adirondacks. And uh, really appreciate Camp of the Woods' support of the university and for you as students to make it uh, a better deal for you in terms of working there this summer. So take advantage of that. The other thing I want to uh, press a little bit from the front, because we announced it a, a number of years ago, we announced a... Uh, an initiative, the New Horizons Scholarship, which was a scholarship we were raising money for to make it possible uh, for women who are clients of uh, local Choice One uh, uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center, clients of that ministry, uh, for young women who have uh, made the decision to choose life and therefore suspended their plans about college uh, to go ahead and uh, bring their baby to term and to, um, and to become mothers rather than to choose abortion. They chose life. We've been raising money for that scholarship program. Uh, we've been really encouraged by the response so far. But coming up on April 27th, the Cairn Cares 5K, uh, which we've done a couple times, uh, will be taking place on April 27th at 9 a.m. here. That's a 5K. It's not a marathon. It's not a half marathon. It's a 5K. You can run it. You can walk it. You can crawl across the finish line for all I care. But... <laughs> It's an opportunity for you to raise, to raise some money. It's a $15 fee, or you can raise sponsors who will sponsor you to run and therefore run for free that day. That's not a lot of money. You can hit some people up to do that, but we want to raise money for this scholarship to help mothers who choose life come and get a college education at Cairn University. It's a very exciting program taking place on April 27th. My wife and I are looking forward to participating. I will not be borrowing a uniform from the cross-country team, as I do not think they have one that will fit me. So we will, uh, but please come. Please come to the 5K 
uh, the Karen Cares 5K on April 27th at 9 a.m. You can, uh, there's lots of information out there about that. I know we have the baby bottle campaign going on right now as well to help Choice One, but please uh, take advantage of this opportunity and help us support uh, these mothers who make the right choice and choose life. Um, those are my announcements. Now let's jump into this series. Think on these things, keeping a biblical perspective in a cynical and subversive age. Uh, we have one more after today. Uh, we've done this all semester where we're talking about the importance of maintaining a biblical perspective on a couple of key areas. We looked at labels and identities. We looked at the issue of sin and grace. Uh, we've been looking at different areas over the last couple of months together. Today, I want to talk about immorality and intimacy. Uh, so it's a very easy subject to cover. It shouldn't make anyone uncomfortable. We're going to talk about sex in chapel at Cairn University. But we need to talk about it because the Bible talks about it. And we need to talk about it because the world in which you live talks about it. In fact, uh, this is an important series. Remember what we've said all along is the whole thing of thinking on these things is that we would bring to bear some intentionality about the way in which the world around us influences us and shapes us, not just the decisions we make, not just the things that we do, but the way in which the world affects our sensibilities, the way we form judgments, the way we evaluate things, the way we think and feel about thinking and feeling. We need to be very careful in this day because it is both cynical and dismissive of things like we believe as Bible-believing Christians, and subversive, attempting to pull it down. What you believe is ridiculous. Remember, we talked last time about faith and miracles, the rejection of the virgin birth, the rejection of the resurrection. These are things, it's not just that we doubt them in secular society, we think you're foolish as Christians for believing it. The important thing for us to do in a world that is both cynical and subversive is to think rightly about the things that matter in life. And so we've looked at a number of different things, thinking about our culture, and today I want to look at this issue of immorality, but not just immorality, but also thinking biblically about the issue of intimacy, of human intimacy, particularly in terms of our sexual behaviors and sexual relationships. And I think that's absolutely critical in the world in which we live. It fits with this this series, because we, remember we've talked about all along, we find ourselves adrift all of a sudden without realizing it. We're thinking the way that the secular culture in which we find ourselves thinks. Rather than thinking according to God's word and applying biblical wisdom to the issues of life, we find ourselves thinking just like the world around us. We talked about this throughout the semester. In an impatient world, it's very easy for us as Christians to justify being impatient. Everyone around us is impatient. That makes it acceptable. Except the Bible says that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And we as Christians don't get the luxury of saying, no one's patient anymore. Why should we have to be patient anymore? No one finds their identity solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'd rather label myself with these nine associative terms, and, and no one labels themselves as a follower of Jesus anymore. Not for Christians. There's no other label we wear but that. No one talks about sin anymore. Christians, that's the point. If there's no sin in the world, there's no need for a Savior, and everything we believe is a lie. We talk about faith and miracles. If God is not the one who can suspend the natural order to intervene in this world, then He can't be creator and sustainer, and He can't be Savior. We can't reject faith and miracles because the world around us does, because that's the substance of our following Jesus. We have faith in God and in His Son. 
And so those things matter. And the same thing happens here. We live in a world that will pull us in a particular direction just because someone says no one thinks about morality that way anymore. No one puts those kind of restrictions on you with regard to your sexual thinking and identity and behavior. No one does. It's an antiquated notion. You shouldn't believe it. And the temptation for us in this world is to find ourselves drifting in that direction. But Christian, the Bible speaks clearly about these things. In fact, it calls us to something special with regard to them, and we need to be very careful. So this morning, I want to talk about this issue of intimacy and immorality, because this is the reality. We live in a world, in a culture so saturated with sexuality, sexual images, and sexual noise that it's very easy for us to be tone deaf regarding immorality and intimacy. But the Bible speaks to both, and we must pay attention. Because the temptation will be to become tone deaf. This, the differentiating between this position and this, this, this idea and that idea, this behavior and that idea, we become tone deaf to those issues and we can't do that as Christians. We have to pay attention because the Bible speaks to it. And this passage that Dean Porcella read to us is the one I selected for this morning. The Apostle Paul writing to those Christians at Corinth, and we've looked at passages in Corinthians before. This is, this is a city on a major trade route. It's a city that we know from historical evidence and other kinds of sources, not just the Bible, that this was a city that was prospering, where there was a lot of religious diversity in the form of pagan worship, some of it quite immoral. There was a lot of money, a lot of corruption a lot of immorality present in the society, a very permissive society. That's the world that these Christians lived in. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to them because they're struggling to maintain their faith and hold true to the things they believe to be true in that world. And that's the world we live in. That's the challenge of living in this context, in this culture. We are saturated with all of this. And we have to be mindful of the way in which the world is affecting our thinking. And so the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes this to these Christians, and he's beginning here at this passage I've selected, Free from sec- flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The exhortation here is to flee. Now, Look, here's the reality. We know, one, I've said this to you all semester, we know that these things are present in the church because the church is populated by human beings. We are flawed and frail. We are as in need of God's grace to sustain us in our life in this world as we were, dependent upon His grace to save us. There are people in this room who have already made mistakes. God has forgiven you. There are people in this room who have, have, have thought things and done things that you might be ashamed of. Pause that for a moment and follow me in terms of this conversation. Because what matters now is what we think from this day forward. And so here we find ourselves wrestling with this issue. The Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality. This idea occurs throughout the Bible. Think about it for just a moment. When you hit something, right? A challenge, a temptation. The Bible says to flee, it doesn't mean turn around and let it chase you for the rest of your life. It means get out of that situation now. I think what happens to some of us, and I have friends who have actually said this to me, I'm tired of fleeing. And my point was this, the Bible didn't tell you to flee, to turn around and let this thing chase you for the rest of your life. And to stay just beyond its grasp, half step ahead of the dog. The Bible says flee from this situation. It it says when you encounter something that is tempting, get out of that situation as quickly as possible. 
That biblical exhortation to flee sexual immorality, I think, is an honest one that takes into account human nature. The Bible doesn't doesn't mince any words, doesn't take anything off the pitch with regard to human nature. The biblical exhortation to flee sexual immorality is a transparent and honest one that takes into account our human nature. And you see this from the siren song of Homer's Odyssey, do not go to that island, to the Genesis account of Potiphar's wife, run and flee her grasp. This is wisdom. When you find yourself in that situation, don't tempt it. Don't Play with, don't tease it. Don't allow yourself to be run out of that situation. That's the Bible's exhortation. It doesn't mean turn and let it chase you for the rest of your life. It means get out of there now because your nature will trip you up. You are not strong enough on your own. You must exit like Joseph did and fall before God to give me grace to keep from this sin. And if David had done that with Bathsheba, it would have been a different turn in his life. The Bible says David looked upon her and lusted and decided he must have her. He did not flee. He gave into it. The Bible's exhortation to flee is taking into account an honest look at human nature. And you and I should not lose sight of that. This is the thing. Stop. We talked about this in the past with regard to sin and grace. You find yourself there. Stop. Proceed with the mental discipline to stop. Get away. Get away from the situation that will drag you down. The next thing we see in the passage is that the seriousness of sexual immorality it's always, it's always difficult to talk on this because I think this is it. We say, well, just another message of, uh, uh, on how Christians are supposed to be pure. And the truth is, I've found in talking to groups about this, there are a couple of different responses that happen. One, preach it, brother, because you think you're pure. right? Two, um, purity's overrated. I've tried it. It's not as fun. Three, I can't be pure. I'm already stained. Four, don't make me feel guilty. Everyone around me says this is a ridiculous standard. You can't do that. Because God in his love and grace and wisdom has given us his word that calls us to that kind of life. And so here we find ourselves having to deal with this because God takes sexual sin seriously. This isn't to make you feel more guilty. This message and what Paul is saying to these Christians is you can be free and liberated from this, but you have to take it seriously. And so he says here this very straightforwardly. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, Paul's writing to a church where it's not just that they have sexual behavior happening outside of marriage. They also have some really aberrant kinds of things going on. Incest, pagan worship where you pay for a prostitute. It's a bad place, folks. This isn't, this isn't TV commercials that you shouldn't watch. This is much worse than that. But he says, listen, there's, this is the reality, is that sexual, sexual immorality is a serious sin. You cannot sit here in the world in which we live and say, nah, it's just like every other sin. Well, the, it is true that sin is sin. But Paul, under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit here, says the difference between these sins is profound. Sexual immorality is a serious sin. It's set apart from others, and here's why. Because Paul says here, it is self-destructive. I, I tell you something, reading through this passage over the course of my life, it's just a very, very, very powerful idea. Paul is saying this sin is set apart from other sins because other sins happen outside your body. You're, you're hurting and offending someone else. This one destroys you. It's self-destructive. It's self-destructive sin. Now think about this for a minute. This is, this is a really, I think, a difficult thing to get your mind around. This 
issue of sexual immorality is self-destructive. Something that we were drawn to as being pleasurable is actually harmful. This is where the Bible turns everything upside down. I've heard people say this, at the end of your life, it will not be the things that you didn't do that you remember, it'll be the things that you did. It will not be the things you didn't do, you did, you did that you regret, the things you didn't do are what you regret. And they apply that to sexual behavior. It's a lie, right out of the pit of hell. Embracing sexual immorality, participating in that kind of thing is self-destructive. And those of you that are struggling with it know it. You know you're rotting on the inside because of this. And that's what the Bible says. This is a serious sin. It is self-destructive. And the thing that you are drawn to because it seems pleasurable is actually harmful to you. God in His grace has made a way. He wants us delivered from it. When I read this passage and I think about where you're at in your lives, where we all are as human beings, but particularly for you as college students, in teaching social and behavioral sciences for years, anytime we get, I've, I've told my students this, do you know how, I actually lose weight the week I have to pre teach on Freud here. It's a stressful thing to talk to you about Sigmund Freud. Because Sigmund Freud says all of our behaviors are driven by this biological instinct for pleasure. We want it, therefore we have to have it. And as Christians we say, well, Freud is a pagan, he's not Christian, we should reject everything he says. And yet, the words of the Apostle Paul echo in my ears. Those things I want to do, I don't. And those things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. The problem is that Freud says, give in to your instincts. And the Bible says, crucify them. And so here we find ourselves in this dilemma. And every time I find myself talking about this issue with you, this is it. Here you are, at your biological prime, in a context that says, do not. That's a hard place to be. The biblical teaching concerning sexual behavior is not an easy one. It's not. The culture around us, our nature, our experiences, all converge to complicate our life in this area. But God has made a way. He not only calls us to morality, He gives us grace and the gift of human intimacy. And here's the problem. We still keep fighting a war we should not lose in a way that we cannot win. Some of you have already surrendered, and some of you are fighting by your own volition and your own willpower, and that will not get it done. We do believe that the Bible has a standard that human sexual relations are a gift from God that are to be enjoyed within the bounds of holy marriage between a man and a woman. We believe that is an institution. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what we expect from you. We also recognize that you live in a context that's pressing you very difficultly on this. You have a human nature. You have your own issues of hormones and reality. You have your own experiences. Some of you terrified about it. Others of you have made mistakes in the past. All of this converges to complicate it for us in this world. And here's the problem. We think then that someone will stand up and say, abstinence is the key. All you need to do is not, not participate. Just abstain. Just abstain. And some of you hear that and say, no problem. Boys are icky anyway. Some of you look and say, no problem because I don't care anymore. No problem. It's too late for me. But that's not reality. What's really happening here is God is saying to these Christians who are immersed in a pagan culture and in all kinds of immorality, today is the day that you set this aside. 
Abstinence is what we expect. It's what we teach. It's what God calls us to in his word. But listen, friends, it has to involve more than self-denial. Otherwise, this is what happens to us. It's like fasting all day while you do nothing but think about food, think about when you can eat, or feel guilty about wanting to eat it later. This is not God's design. He didn't say to you, fast so that you can obsess about food for 24 hours. And he doesn't say to you, abstain from sex so that you can be preoccupied about it until the day comes when it's appropriate for you to participate. What are we supposed to do when we fast? Fast and pray, for the hour is short. Here's the thing. The the key to this is this. We don't simply find ourselves behaving in a sexually moral fashion according to biblical purity by simply denying ourselves this. We have to fill ourselves with something else. Like fasting and prayer, sexual morality means filling your life, your mind, your time with something else. And 1 Corinthians 6 should be an encouragement to you because it says right here, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It doesn't say it was meant for sexual morality. It says the body was not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Brothers and sisters, this issue of finding yourself making better decisions about your sexual thinking and sexual behavior is not an act of willpower, but an act of a yielded will. And that's a very important thing. If you think you'll fast more effectively by obsessing about what you're not eating and thinking about the day when you can eat or feeling guilty because you're fasting and wanting to eat or find yourself looking at pictures of food all day long, that's not what fasting was designed for. It was designed to set aside something so that you could focus on something else. And in this way, God has given us a way to deal with this morality issue. He's given humanity the gift of sexual intimacy And to some, like the Apostle Paul states in this passage, the gift of celibacy. This intimacy that God gives us is to be treasured and rightly expressed. And the celibacy that God gives some is to be celebrated and utilized for God's service. This means that you and I in Christian community do not defile, degrade, or deny either gift. This is not a message telling you you shouldn't think about sex. God said at the very beginning it's not good for you to be alone. In fact, when you are joined, you are no longer two, but become one. And if God gives you the gift of celibacy, it's to free you from that part of life that you might pour yourself into something else. This is what the Apostle Paul says. I'd rather you didn't marry, but I'll tell you this. I'd rather you marry than burn. Because I don't want you falling and failing to temptation. God gives us this gift of intimacy that we might enjoy it. But listen... There's something really special about what Paul does after warning them about immorality. He says to them concerning the whole matters about human relations, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But listen, likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. We are mutually obligated to one another in the right bonds of marriage, that our bodies and our lives do not belong to ourselves. We have become one with one another. That's the picture of marriage you need to understand from the Bible. The two become one. My body is not my own. It belongs to someone else. Her body is not hers. It belongs to me. Now, I have a friend who has a line that he always says, what's yours is yours, what's mine, what's yours is yours, what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine. That's his line. What's yours is mine, what's mine is mine. That's not the way marriage works. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Money, time, goals, expectations, bodies. The picture that God gives here is this beautiful thing of two becoming one. 
Now think about this for a minute. What he says is, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. Sexual intimacy, as described in the Bible, is a giving thing. Sexual immorality, as defined in the Bible, is a taking thing. And so here's the thing. There's no such thing as sexual immorality that is giving. And if you're involved in sexual intimacy, that it's about, more about taking than giving, you're off the tracks as well. Sexual intimacy is a giving thing, not a taking thing. In marriage, our bodies are not our own. They belong to the other. And not only did God declare that it was not good for us to be alone, he instructed us later in this letter to the Corinthians that love is not selfish. And these truths should not only shape your friendships, it should shape your sexual relationships as well. This is it. Sexual immorality is a sin unlike the others. And then it destroys you. God in his grace, if you've made a mistake, forgives you and ready for you to start anew, to yield your will to his, to fill your life and your mind and your time with other things. And then to look expectantly, either to being given the gift of celibacy or the gift of intimacy, to enjoy it and let your bodies be used for the glory of God. And that's the picture here. The key to keeping a biblical perspective with regard to morality and intimacy is this, that we're to, we understand we're to glorify God in our bodies, for they are the, the temples of God dwelt in by the Holy Spirit. When I think about the struggles that you face in this world, that all of us face, it's not a generational issue, it's a cultural issue. We are saturated, not just with images that tempt us, not just with thoughts and ideas that tempt us, not just with access to things through the internet and other media vehicles where, where it tempts us. The temptation, the worst temptation in all of it, is it begins to undermine and erode this idea that intimacy and celibacy are gifts from God to be used for his glory. And that's the thing, brothers and sisters. You want to think on these things. In this world where you're bombarded with all of this stuff, rather than thinking about what you're denying yourself, think what you're giving to God. Rather than think what you will take from a member of the opposite sex, think what you are giving to a member of This is the picture. To be selfless and sacrificial. To lay these things down at the feet of Jesus for the glory of God. That your bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit may be used to further the gospel not gratify the id or the instincts that Sigmund Freud identified. We have God's grace, which sets us apart from that. Sets us apart from that. If you're struggling today, know there is forgiveness. We talked about this a couple of messages ago. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Forgiven, paid for, banished, gone. Set yourself free from the guilt it is paid for. And if you're dabbling around the edges thinking, well, I'll, uh, the, the issue for me is how much like the world can I be and still be a Christian, you're asking yourself the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Don't flirt with danger. Don't flirt with the things that the Bible says flee from. Flee from the situation. Fix your minds upon God. If God gives you the gift of human intimacy, be a giving, loving, sacrificial, selfless person who wants to see the other person happy and fulfilled. If you're given the gift of celibacy, expend it in service to God. This is the picture of biblical morality. This is the picture of biblical intimacy. And the culture in which we live will push you in another direction. You must be careful to think on these things. These things. That way you maintain a biblical perspective in a cynical and subversive day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And we pray that you will impress upon us the truths of your word that you would give us the grace and strength to flee from immorality, 
that you would give us the grace and strength to embrace and enjoy human intimacy rightly expressed. We pray that you would give us the grace and ability and wisdom to use celibacy for your good and the advancement of your work. Father, we pray for students in this room who are struggling now, members of the faculty and staff and guests, all of us who are struggling now, that if we find ourselves having fallen and made mistakes and choices that are not honoring to you, we pray that you would give us the grace to confess those, to humbly seek your mercy and forgiveness, and to ask you for grace to make a change. Father, for those that are feeling guilty, we pray that you would give them the grace to understand that this dimension of humanity is given to us by you, and it can be enjoyed in a way that is undefiled, that brings you glory and honor. Father, for those that are taking these issues too lightly, we pray that your Spirit would put weight upon them, that they might not take this too lightly, but understand the self-destructive nature of the sin of sexual immorality. And Father, we pray that you would make us as a community one that cares for one another in every area of life, even this one, that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds with the way we think about and practice this dimension of our human existence. Father, we pray you give us grace and wisdom to judge rightly the way in which the world around us is affecting us. Give us a perspective that sees our bodies as temples of your Holy Spirit, that they may be used for your glory, as you intended, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great rest of the day.